0: Hi guys, welcome back to my Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Another fantastic day for an interview. And whilst I'm always sort of excited to be an interview, sometimes the topics that we bring out, you think, why the hell can he be so excited? The reason is simple. The reason I tried in the past to escape from reality was because of the trauma that I had experienced in my life. Now, uh, trauma comes in so many shapes and uh, every, every person is different. Every trauma is different. However, so, there are so many parallels, so many similarities amongst our, the survivors of trauma that it is just mind-blowing. Yet, trauma survivors typically are, are trapped in the belief that, oh my God, this happens never to anyone else how could it have happened to me and the shame and the guilt and put all that together. And then that's why you shut up and that's why you try to escape. And I'm doing this show with the help of some beautiful guests who are coming and actually sharing their stories with, with me here so that you guys out there see actually, wow, that happened to him. Well, actually that happened to me too. And uh, Tim Musso here is today my guest and Tim I'm so grateful that you're on my show because we're going to be talking about some 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 hard hard truth some hard trauma um, and I'm so grateful that you that you have made it your mission to bring hope to to others so that maybe their life can change. So Tim Musso welcome to my show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really Excited to be here and just grateful mm. for the opportunity, as I, I know you mentioned it's um, sexual violence and abuse comes up so often when we think about trauma and that shame piece and the isolation is such a huge component of it. Mm. And it's it was very helpful for me early on in my own journey to hear other survivors who are able to speak up and tell their story because it just it demystifies it and it takes away such a stigma. So thank mm. you for the opportunity and the platform.
0: Mm and it's guys if you if you watch this show and have you have been following me you will find quite a few uh interviews that i've done with sexual sub- abuse uh survivors and it is weird you think oh come on that is, is sexual abuse that must be rare this is, that n- never ever happens actually actually what are the figures, Tim, if, if, if people sort of come with a certain degree of disbelief to you, what figures do you quote them?
1: Yeah, so best research we have on it is about, and actually, this one just came out from a study that was done by the World Health Organization in the last year. And that was that one in three women will experience some form of sexual abuse or violence in their lifetime, right? And um, then we also know that about one in six men will experience some form of sexual abuse or violence. And I think whenever I talk about those figures, the thing I always try and clarify for people is that abuse and violence are such broad umbrella terms that I think so often when we hear about that, we think of things like violent penetrative rape. Absolutely. That is a form of sexual violence and sexual abuse, but it can be anything, right? So yes, it can be rape or sexual assault. It's sexual harassment. Physically or verbally, it's unwanted touching or groping. It's things like stalking, um, in person or electronically. It's you know intimate partner violence in a relationship. It's things like catcalling um, or even sending so, uh, or you know a nude photo or video without someone's permission or consent, right? And so I try and help people understand that. Of uh, when you hear that number, and if you're only thinking of the worst most egregious violent behaviors. Mm. I think that's why some people have that resistance of, oh, that's too high, that can't be possible. Mm. Um, but we know it's, it's. you look at all these behaviors in some, and in their totality, I think that's where you can see the prevalence really coming in. Mm.
0: And I think that's really so important. The What you're already alluding to, because there is uh, sexual violence come and abuse uh, is such a, a broad term. Um, it is. It makes it very difficult to actually delineate. I can. I can see it happen that that a lot of probably men more than women will say, "What me? I would never do that." I mean, come on! Look at me. I'm. I'm a leader in my in my field. I am. I'm. I'm. You know, I go to church every Sunday. You're kidding me that I would be sexually violent. Um, <laughs> what would you say there?
1: Yeah, it's trying to reconcile who's perpetrating abuse and you know, what type of behaviors they're engaging in, right? So I think that anytime I talk to audiences and they get defensive, I think that overwhelmingly, no one I think ever sits in my program and says, yes, I would choose to do this, right? The people who mm. do aren't gonna admit that publicly. Mm. And more often than not, everyone gets that defensiveness of I'm a good person, kind of, as you alluded to. I would never, I would never. Mm. And it's trying to break down, helping people understand that, there's behaviors are engaging in that can be predatory or can be violent that you may not perceive as such right so we look at individuals who are committing acts of sexual violence and a lot of times when we study their motivations we find that some people choose to do this we know there's a subset of the population that chooses to engage in sexual violence and they do it because of power and control and the power and control it gives them we also know that a large number of perpetrators or people who are perpetrating violence are doing so because their community has normalized those behaviors. So their community has told them, this is okay. This is the way you should engage in relationships. This is okay if it happens in your partnership or with a partner, this is a part of dating. This is something we're socialized to believe. And then there's kind of this third subsect that they're just ignorant. They haven't received education around things like consent or looking at boundaries and respecting someone's boundaries and seeking those out. And I have to try and help people reconcile the, again, an overwhelming majority are probably not in that first category of intentional predatory behavior for the sake of it, but we have a lot of people who are perpetrating or engaging in acts that are perpetrating violence and trying to help them understand just because your community told you this was okay it doesn't take away the impact of the actions. Certainly the harm might be different, the way that someone experiences that harm, the way you might reconcile or deal with that harm if you violated someone's boundaries or consent can absolutely be different. But there can still be an incident that occurs, even if you don't mean to or intend to. Your own intentions don't lessen that actual behavior just because others have told you that's normal or okay.
0: Very, very powerful words there and very lovely Delineated uh, the various drivers that result in men and women uh, crossing boundaries that they might not know are there, or even if they know they are there, they override them uh, because it fits into their belief system. If you take the worst group there, if you take the the sexual predators out there, um, is that? Uh, Am I too naive to say that if I look at a group of 1% in the population, which are uh, sociopaths and psychopaths, that that group of sexual predators will overlap with sociopaths, psychopaths? Or are we actually talking about a rather uh, smaller overlap there? If you look at, at people who are really wanting to do that, who are these people?
1: Yeah, so the best research we have, um, you know, one of the things I always like to talk about is first and foremost, we know that regardless of the gender of the survivor, roughly 90% of incidents are perpetrated by men, right? So that's a huge factor of the work I do. And there's a lot of, you know, socialization that men receive growing up and the way we're taught to think about sex and talk about sex and seek out sex and all of those pieces that change our behaviors. Um, So if we look at, you know, 90% of assaults or sexual violence is perpetrated by men, when we narrow down, we find that the number, the best number we could find was about 6% of men would willfully engage in acts of sexual violence if they were given an opportunity. So through that assessment and survey, what we were finding is that men wow. were saying, even if I knew this was wrong, if I was, you know, even though I do know this was wrong, if I knew I wasn't going to get caught, I would do these things. I would engage in these behaviors. I would, you know, regardless of what it is, right?
0: That's and one so I think in that's 20. A,
1: yeah, it's an alarmingly high number. It's it's alarming in how large it is. And I think it points to this kind of overarching pervasive narrative of oftentimes how we view sexual violence versus other crimes, um, which again, complicates and muddies the water when we talk about who's perpetrating it and survivors and why there's a stigma around it. I think that this thing that I think a lot of times people don't reconcile is that because every one of us essentially engages in sex, right? We all have sex unless we identify as asexual. Most of us are gonna do it at least once in our lifetime or
0: yeah.
1: multiple times, multiple partners, right? Um, and I think because of that, a lot of times we fail to see the difference between sex and sexual violence. If you hear someone committed an act of murder, you might you know, be surprised by it or shocked right. because you know that person, you can say, wow, that's really you know, crazy. But if you have all this evidence and data that points to this person doing that, you're probably gonna believe it. Versus with sexual violence, I think the the problem is, is that we can't always separate our own innate sexual behaviors from the idea of sexual violence. And so I think for many of us, we look at it and say, well, you know, I engage in sex. And so it kind of muddies our own perception of it. And then I think the other side of it is that when we look at the willingness and that's such a high level of individuals who are willing to actually commit acts of sexual violence, that survey didn't discern between the type, right? So that was the other thing. So that's not necessarily saying that six percent would willfully engage in violent penetrative rape. It might be that some of them were saying, okay, well, I would I'd be willing to engage in cat calling. I would be willing to engage in, you know, inappropriate jokes or sexual harassment. Yeah. Again, not okay in any way, shape, or form. I think the one thing with that that we're saying is that it just shows how little people treat. Sexual violence and how kind of in their mind they are willing to make excuses for behaviors, right? Yeah. They know something's wrong. They've been told it's wrong. They've been told it's not okay. But in their mind, they're still, they're drawing this line between, you know, violent penetrative rape's an awful thing. But what's the harm in catcalling someone? What's the harm in touching someone, you know, inappropriate right? They're 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 not seeing it as that true violation of self and really mm. the harm it is.
0: Mm. And that's so important, isn't it? it? is it is one thing your beliefs and and what you think is happening, but the perception of the other person might be so different and is often is so different. And wow, okay, first of all, the six percent are still uh, uh, wow. Uh, okay, come on that is that is still weird, absolute weird. Um, I am I'm struggling with that because uh, may I ask where was this study done um and uh, did it take into account different belief systems different um you know was it done in a more islamic country or in in the united states um if so you know was there you know was it only catholics that were examined or do you know a bit more about it it was a american based study done
1: with college age men um right, right? right. And so that's kind yeah. of um you know show some of the like the parameters of the background of where it is and stuff. And I yeah. think that um, yeah. still is fairly alarming and looking at that sample size and looking at the number of people they interviewed and how large it was of just like, um, you don't expect that, right? You don't expect them to have that you know, viscerally disgusting of a response of, if I knew I could get away with it, I would. Exactly. Um, especially, I think, when you look at the level of education that most college students receive around sexual violence and the conversations that are going on on college campuses, I think that's where it becomes extremely frightening in that regard. So...
0: And you also have to say that we are now talking about a study that was recently done. So, about two, three years after Me Too. So, you cannot really say, come on, sexual violence, I never heard about that. Me Too, I don't know what that is. Oh, come on, come on. So, no, so you would have expected some change in, in, in parameters, in, in attitude. Um, the 6%, that still blows my mind. I mean, I'm really struggling with that, with that figure of, of people who are willing to, uh, to do things if they can get away with it. That is, there is something deeply, deeply wrong with that. But I mean, it, it's that is that is still a probably the smaller amount of, of people or a tiny amount of people yeah. compared with the much bigger bigger uh, groups of people of those who are just simply um, ignorant and had not been educated about it, and those that that for them it has been normalized. Um, the the more societal norms in certain subgroups of our societies um, are can be can be quite fostering of, of behavior that really, when you look at it, is can be seen as sexual violence. And, and I mean, is, which is... I, I automatically want to prevent myself having the stereotypes flashing up as in Islamic society or or, or things like that. I think it, it's, it's... I don't want to label it. I don't want to nicely pigeonhole it. But yet, I mean, uh, the, there are probably so many examples... Of societal groups that are falling into that trap, what what do you see commonly in the United States? What kind of yeah. of groups do you work with, where actually the a a maybe toxic masculinity um, is being normalized?
1: Yeah, so I think um, you know it's true for the United States, and I think it can apply in so many places, like you said. Um, A lot of times what we're finding is very patriarchal systems, So, and this is something that has extended across the last century, really. Hmm. So anytime men are being socialized from a young age to believe and are taught these ideas like, well, you have to be the provider. And with that, oftentimes comes messaging that to be a provider means being aggressive, not taking no for an answer, Hmm. um, going out and getting what you want. You have to achieve at the cost of others, Well, when you look at those beliefs and they start to trickle out, it is, you know, a lot of men aren't being taught how to respond to a no or to this idea of rejection. So for them, that's something they're unfamiliar with. Mm -hmm. Other pieces of it are a lot of traditional concepts around stoicism, not displaying emotions, not showing what you're feeling. Well, the side effect of that we know is that many men don't grow up in groups where they learn how to read someone else's nonverbal cues. Because, you know, starting around the age of like six and seven here in the United States, for example, most men are taught that you should only show really happiness or sadness in extreme circumstances. Uh, you can show anger all the time, and then all other emotions you kind of should contain, right? Well, when you start to think about that, and we start to see research around it, we're finding that many men are more likely to misread their partner's cues in a sexual situation when they're provided nonverbally. So we've done studies where we found that you know if we engage with and had conversation with couples, we were seeing that men were significantly misreading cues where they would say, "Well, I thought my partner was consenting. I thought they were okay with this through nonverbal responses." And then you would interview the partner, and they would say, "No, I wasn't. That's not at all what I was doing." But again, it comes into this: well, you were you were taught this stuff growing up. And then I think the other piece is we do know in a lot of cultures, especially here in the United States, um, there's really this push that as the man you have to be the one to initiate sex. Again, it goes back to some of the patriarchal role—protector, provider, the dominant figure—and so for many men, if you're taught from a young age, you have to be the one who initiates sex. But then we're also not providing them skills, so that's especially true here in the United States. Sex education is an abysmally done thing here. Um, what you find is that men aren't learning those skills anywhere. They're stumbling into situations where their innate perception is, I have to be the one that initiates this, but they've never been taught what that means. And it's not like they're going to go educate themselves around it. If, If in the best of case scenarios, they have a partner who might educate them, more often than not, they're just skipping steps and they're jumping over things because they've never been taught it and they don't really know how to find that information. It's not you know, a common search topic we think of. Mm. And so instead of learning how to, you know, talk with your partner about sex or what it means to initiate it or how to give them the opportunity in a relationship so they can understand they can initiate it as well. Mm. A lot of guys are just kind of skipping over that piece. And so they're missing out on all these other pieces that allow consent to be established, boundaries Mm. to be respected and discussed and built and all those kind of pieces because they just never were taught that.
0: Yet I've been mean, here. You're saying there are all these studies happening that are looking at college students and at that. So and you would have thought that knowing that one in five college students will experience uh, sexual violence uh, as a female, um, that was sort of the figures that I had in my mind. Yeah. Um, you there, there must be a stronger drive towards education. There must be a stronger drive towards towards. Elucidating the reasons why men do what they do, there must be uh, targeted marketing, so to speak, advertising towards the jock culture, towards the, the 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 kind of yeah, I'm a man, and that that has its place. When you are a type A personality in a in a uh, in a team uh, in a sports team. Well, that's that's how you how you beat yourself up. That's how you yes. Let's go onto the field, and yes, okay, that makes it strong. And uh, funnily enough, the girls like that. That's after all. So let's not be silly. There is a reason that we men behave the way we behave. Um, the the strong masculinity is uh, it can be a magnet to many many women. And so we are not, I, I don't think both of us are, are saying anything against it. So don't misunderstand us if you're the viewers out there. What we are saying is to learn, uh, to to be able to listen, um, even whilst you're displaying such strong traits that serve you well in many aspects of your career, in your, in your, in your school, et cetera, in your college. But uh, when do you, you know, where do you draw the line? When do you say, whoa, this is actually no longer okay, what I'm doing here? And I can see that that is being incredibly hard. And that is really what you want to teach. Yeah,
1: it's trying. I think a lot of times when I do um, masculinity programs, so regardless of the age of the audience, whether it's high schoolers, college students, young professionals, yeah. you know, anyone, um, it's trying to help people reconcile a lot of their rigidity that we're taught. Um, I think one of the, the very dangerous pieces of masculinity is that it's, it's very heavily reinforced. And it's so interesting because whenever I talk to men on an individual level and I ask them about the masculine values they possess and they hold and why especially, you hear these really beautiful stories of, I was taught this by my father, I was taught this by a family member, a coach, a mentor, an authority figure, a brother, a teammate, and because of that, I think everyone likes to look at their masculinity on this very personal level.
0: Yeah.
1: One of the big things that comes out of that, though, is people miss out on how that's being applied on a group level. And also then, as I mentioned, that term rigidity. Um, mm-hmm. Inherently, I tell all men, there's no necessarily negative value. If you value dominance, great. If you value physical strength, fantastic. Sure. You know, those are traditional masculine values. If that's your value, Sure you have to be willing to look at the, what is the impact of that? Hmm. How is it impacting both yourself as well as others? Hmm. And I think that the bigger piece then is, is is there that negative rigidity to it? Are you going to hold on to it no matter what? Hmm. And are you going to enforce it upon others no matter what? Because if you can't be flexible, if you can't be willing to critique it or critique the impacts of it, that's where I think it gets scary, I think that's why so many men feel trapped into these situations where, you know, a lot of times when I've dealt with groups and organizations where an incident of violence has occurred. So a lot of times in my work, I might come in because there was a public facing incident and I'm usually working with other members of that group after the fact, right? And a lot of times what I'll hear is we're not okay with that. That doesn't embody us. That's not who we are. We're bothered by it. We don't like that. And there's this kind of instinctual, we want to separate ourselves from that person. We want to say they're a bad apple, we're not, right? Mm. And it's trying to get them to understand, you know, well, what, what values were you exhibiting that let this person think that was okay? Exactly. How were you challenging them? Because I think that's a big piece. It's like, So many people are not okay with this, but they're also afraid of challenging that that group norm Mm. because it becomes so oppressive. And I think masculinity can be it can be something that is so rigidly enforced on so many people that Mm. we say we want to change it. And I think people do, but the second you go against it, you're ostracized, you're made fun of, you're mocked, you're talked down to. Mm-hmm. And so you find yourself doing it, even if you don't believe in it, but that has impacts. It changes the way we navigate the world, it changes mm-hmm. the way we work with partners, it changes the way we have these conversations. And so I think we have to have that kind of honesty and that bluntness with ourselves to say, mm-hmm. yeah, if we're part of these groups, it can be challenging. It can be hard to be the person who stands up and calls things out, but you have to be willing to do that. You have mm-hmm. to be willing to start to push. Because someone must, and all of us have to, I think, be a little more flexible in allowing that to occur and recognizing mm. when we can be the person standing up in our groups and pushing back.
0: Mm. It's very, very true, isn't it? But, uh, and I see that, I see it, uh, I see all sides of the story because having i'm i'm fifty six and I was brought up in in Germany and the values that certainly my father instilled in me was that you're a successful man if you can lay as many women as you as you can now sexual violence was never part of it, but the goal was to go to bed with with a yeah. woman every night different woman every night and that made you a man um the there are some really fucked up things there, so you yeah. you, you please let's let's be clear yet uh, I find it intriguing there that that uh, this kind of masculinity was normalized it was normalized in advertisements it was normalized in James Bond in the films that we watched uh the way women behaved. it takes through to tango, so women were quite happily sexually active and certainly if you go a little bit further back once the pill came uh, into the life of many women and suddenly the society completely changed now you could actually have sex and, and the, the, the hippie uh the hippie movement uh the, the free sexual uh exploration of life uh, started uh when there were no more consequences so bottom line is there's a difference between between us growing up in different environments and with different belief systems yet recognizing the limit of no the limit of actually there is a line in the sand Um, however wrong i perceive nowadays my values from that time there was still nowhere that i stepped over the mark and i wonder why why did i not with with that kind of more or less toxic masculinity why did i not become a perpetrator what made me different and that is weird is is and I, I don't actually have an answer I guess i'm I'm therefore I'm, I'm I've never thought about that question but here I am um having all the wrong guidance uh, all the wrong you know living in a society where where that kind of behavior was normalized yet to the best of my knowledge I've never stepped across a boundary
1: yeah and I think sometimes it comes down to um underlying things you might be taught about power right because I think that certainly comes into play um, yeah. and you know I earlier I know I mentioned how men respond to rejection because yeah. um, I think they're and this is what trying to get some people to reconcile is there is a large difference between sex positivity and this idea of having and engaging in sex as often as you want and as much as you like and not shaming someone for their sexual values and yeah. you know being able to have consequence for free sex outside of monogamous relationships and being taught that your value is tied to it right i think that's the you know when you were talking that's the the piece that some people forget and they fail to recognize is that there's this difference between saying i want to have multiple sexual partners and i have to have multiple sexual partners because it defines my worth and i have to do that because i think when you approach it from the this is something i like and i enjoy nothing wrong with that when you approach it from the i have to do this to feel this way Again, then you're probably more likely to miss out on your partner's cues. You're more likely to ignore those cues, even if they're being provided to you, because in your mind, this person's stopping you from a sense of conquest and stopping you from a sense of achievement, right? You know, you stop when you, I think when you think of a partner as a object of providing you worth, Hmm. the large risk you run is that you are diminishing them as a person and you're not thinking of them from that empathetic standpoint. Hmm. And then I think sometimes what people fail to recognize is that there's a piece of luck involved in that too right? Like I think sometimes it's that it's it's just potentially that, you know, in the situations we choose to engage in, we never ran into a situation where we made someone uncomfortable or violate their boundaries. And I think that's the thing I oftentimes tell audiences, you know, if you're not actively pausing to seek out consent and taking a step back and thinking about all these interior pieces of your identity and why you're doing it and engaging with yourself and asking those honest questions about your motivations and how you're treating partners because of them, mm. sometimes it's a matter of luck. You know. And I think that really comes down to that second category of people who are engaging in the behaviors mm. that are potentially predatory or violent, and they don't perceive it as such because they don't think themselves capable of those things, but they're still capable of causing harm because there is that chance and it's just a matter of which who have your partners been and you know how are they expressing their boundaries and how are they expressing consent
0: beautifully said beautifully said because that will, that is the gray zone and that will be the biggest yeah. zone isn't it um where people say now i would never rape a, a woman yet certain behaviors are actually acceptable to you and to actually put a spotlight on that and make you accept that you are so inclined, that you have such belief systems. And if we never think about them and certainly never talk about them, how the hell can it come out but in absolutely the wrong moment when everything is on the line and you have to make that choice? Do I push further or do I want to understand that this nonverbal communication actually means bugger off? No, don't want to. Um, And I think that's the big thing intriguing but it's such a, a multifaceted uh, issue that the the sexuality and and the way we talk because i know tim you are very strong in regards to the the the, the atmosphere that is leading to it what do you allow in organizations to occur to more or less facilitate uh, a path towards sexual assault and it's it's i must say that uh, a that many many groups in our society have got a very strong uh, humor uh, and a very uh, humor that is often sexually explicit, uh, that is often extreme in their in their nature. And that's often uh, people like me, doctors, nurses, we can have very black humors, policemen, firemen, uh, soldiers, people who see the reality of life. We often have got a fatalistic humor and it is often it goes it goes pretty brutal. Um it is very hard. I mean, how do I draw the line there between uh making some uh joke that I consider innocent and um, how do I prevent that being seen by someone else as a sexual harassment? You know, how how do you help people with that kind of attitude?
1: Yeah, I think there's two sides to it. I think the first is um sometimes reconciling and understanding what is the context, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's a huge piece because we know context changes. We know context does matter in many situations, right? So I think about like things like um, you know, when you study food service industries, right, so either yeah. restaurants or bars, yeah. there's oftentimes a higher level of inner office relationships. A lot of times you're seeing that, or I guess not office, but inner workplace relationships, right, where you see that just because of sometimes age, proximity to people, you know, physically, um, all of those kind of things, that oftentimes there's a lot higher level of people within those work environments engaging in inner work relationships as opposed to maybe like a you know accounting firm or financial mm-hmm. services and such right And so in that kind of situation, you know, and some of the ones you mentioned, certainly you can say, hey, there's this context. This is the way that within this environment, this has been contextualized and this is kind of grounded in the core of what's happening and um, the type of environment that's been created. And so I think sometimes it's knowing the context you're in and understanding and paying attention to that context and really making sure that you're aware of it um, as you choose to engage in behaviors and being also aware of how can you separate that um, because then I think the second piece is, are you also thinking about the intentionality of what you're doing and the impact of what you're doing? Um, cause I think intentionality does matter in the impact area, mm. but I think we have to reconcile, you know, sometimes I think people get caught in their ways and they get they get so, you know, well, this is the way it's been. Why can't people adapt to it? And I think we have to realize that, life progresses time progresses our perceptions of things progress and just because something has always been that way Mm. doesn't mean it's right or doesn't mean we were actually listening doesn't Mm. mean it's okay and doesn't mean that people were okay with it ever right Mm. I think sometimes we have to be willing to you know kind of look at things that we hold dear and say hey is this serving us or not
0: beautiful Um, yeah absolutely beautifully said isn't it and things are changing things that were normal in the 70s in the 80s um, it is yeah you, you think you're kidding me it was a while ago there was a um, a, a television series Life on Mars And somehow a New York uh, policeman is having a head injury and is somehow beamed back into the 70s in the same police precinct and and, um, is now with with a modern mind. He can recognize everything, but he is living in the 70s. And it's beautifully done, the sexism, the smoking, the the using violence on, on people in interrogations, things like that perfectly done and when you look at it from that angle you have to say bloody hell we hopefully have come a long way um and then you think actually have we or are we still on a journey there that actually needs to be constantly reflected upon and see i love it how you say that see if your behavior is still making sense and is serving a purpose if i do a sexually explicit joke at work and I manage to decompress the situation and everyone just bursts out in stupid laughter because it's such a stupid joke, um, then I've achieved a goal. And I don't think I will have necessarily uh, harmed someone, but people will recognize that, okay, I allowed a very tense situation to just like, suddenly crack. And, and that is a beautiful thing. The same joke uh in relation if i was alone with a a woman maybe a a nurse where i'm a doctor so you've got already that power difference and if i now say oh that little joke about the tits uh, that's probably a very different story um compared with the first thing so i love the way that you say the context matters a lot and and that's and you can you can point that out. Um so for example, in our theater environment in the hospital in which I'm working, uh, most of us are about the same age. um, and we all have been around the block a few times. And when we come up with humor like that, then we do it on purpose, and it is uh, everyone takes turns of being the the, the target of of that humor absolutely fine sometimes we have got student nurses coming into theater and all of us are making them well sure whatever happens in theater stays in theater number one number two it is what you see there are coping mechanisms to deal with stress that have been evolved in our environment over a long period of time so you can actually spell that out to to people to con- contextualize and to to make people understand of what is happening okay. rather than affront them and maybe hurt them. And maybe they misunderstand things because the way what has been happening in their life is so different than what has been happening in our longer life. So maybe that might be a way to look at it.
1: Yeah, I think you mentioned the power dynamics, which I think is so important, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think so often when I hear people talk about this, that's a, a key that people are missing is, you know, I think that, um, if you and I are on the same power level right now, even, you know, in this conversation, there's kind of the capability for me to call things out in a different way, right? Because, you know, if you said something, I could say, look, I'm not going to do this anymore. I could walk off and I could stop the interview, right? But there's kind of that difference of if I'm someone's supervisor, and they rely on me for a job, that power dynamic doesn't exist. So they rely on me for an internship or the fact that I have to sign off on things at the end of the day, or if they're my student, or, you know, a lot of times like when I'm on stage and I'm working with an audience, I have to be careful what I say, because they've been told you have to be in this room and you have to listen to this guy. And so (laughs) there's a power dynamic. And I think a lot of times people, they, they forget that that exists or they're, they're unwilling to address it and acknowledge it. And I think that's where, um, sometimes people get very defensive is in their mind again they focus on what they're trying to accomplish but they're missing all this nuance and they're unwilling to look at the nuance and they're saying well i've said these jokes with other people i said these Mm. jokes 10 years ago i said these jokes in this kind of situation why is it a problem now Mm. and you know like you said stuff changes a Mm. um b we have to think about power because i think that's a hard thing for a lot of people Mm. is just because you've always said it doesn't necessarily mean everyone was always comfortable with it it might have been the case that they didn't have the power to call it out and you were just mm-hmm. ignoring that and you never heard it right and I think that's the thing about so many incidents of sexual harassment we see in the workplace mm-hmm. um, and that's occurring is a lot of times it it goes unreported right mm-hmm. you know what I mean like we know that about 87 to 94 percent of employees who face sexual harassment don't ever say anything about it. And I think that's something that's shocking to a lot of people is that I think with Me Too and so many public facing movements, Mm. people are expecting a lot more conversations around it. Mm. When more often than not, the majority of times, people who are experiencing it aren't speaking up. And many times they just leave, they leave the Mm. company, they leave the organization, Mm. they find a new team to be a part of, Mm. um, because they don't have the power to say anything. And again, that's where I think it's hard for people because they're like, well, why am I hearing Mm. this now? And it's like, well, hey, if this has been going on, there's a chance it's never been okay. Just no one felt like they could say that to you.
0: Very powerful. Very, very true. And certainly here in New Zealand, there is the, the tall poppy syndrome. Um, if you speak out, if you say something, you're going to get cut yep. off. And that is whistleblowing here is is career suicide, ultimately. Yeah. And uh, regrettably, I've seen... Quite a few examples of that. and I'm living through one right now where a colleague is blowing the whistle. And it is, it is not pretty to see what is what is happening. Yeah. I think the other thing we need to say is also that, that not everyone is right in the head. And that sounds maybe derogatory, but let me explain. I said already earlier, 1% of the society are psychopaths, sociopaths, really nasty pieces of work. 10% of the society have got a personality disorder and there are various personality disorders but for example a narcissistic personality disorder these people they are hardwired in a very different way than you and I they don't see any harm they do they they don't have the empathy that you would expect under certain circumstances. Now, if you look at personality disorders and you say one in 10, well, that's one in 10 people that you work with. And some of them are the, the quirky nerds maybe, some of them are the very needy people, some of them, there are a number of personality disorders, so not by no means want to sort of do a broad brush over it. But I want to say, hang on, there's, there's some people who are just thinking very differently than you. And they might not see your cues. They might not see you actually saying, "Hey, you heard me." What they understand is something very different. Even if you were to yeah. spell it out,
1: yeah, and that's I think especially when you when you bring up like um, narcissistic personality disorder and that lack of empathy, mm. right? Because I think that's a huge piece. Is mm. um, when we look at so many behaviors of sexual violence, there has to be that empathy of recognizing when someone has told you that they've that you've done something wrong and the desire to remedy it and i think that's especially true when it's not um you know the egregious acts of violence right i think it's it's the if most of us if someone came to us and said hey you made me feel uncomfortable with that joke um, mm. we might feel defensive initially because we might say, oh, I was just trying to make a joke. But mm. I think that for many of us, there's that kind of initial reaction of once we get over our defensiveness, we might have that, oh, shit moment of, oh my God, I didn't think I was that type have a person. Mm.
0: Have I for said sure. something
1: else? Have yeah. I done something else wrong? Can, yeah. you know, how can I fix this kind of thing? But then you share that startling number of, hey, if there's these people who don't have that empathy, it's like, yeah, they're mm. just going to say, okay,
0: you know, And it's hard. But I think if it, I think it the, the flow on thought in my head automatically is, well, de- therefore it becomes so important to speak out, and to yeah. say, hey, um, did you really mean it the way you said that? Because it really actually hurt me, and you therefore open up a conversation. You therefore, yeah. rather than being aggressive and maybe confrontational, you can say actually the way you spoke, there really good, close to me um the way you touched me there um really made me feel uncomfortable and you can say it like that and and it doesn't have to be a major confrontation but you can just by verbalizing it you stand up to the other person regardless where they are in their power scheme um you know it is a beautiful thing to actually speak out i think it's okay to not be okay But it's not okay to not seek help. It's not okay to shut up. It's not okay to keep suffering, because something is wrong somewhere. The suffering is there. It's either you. um, It can be. Maybe you are in 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 a in a in a really in a headspace where you absolutely misunderstand misunderstand where your understanding might be different than then had, had space headspace being different okay so it I was certainly in a, in a in a time, When I was depressed, when I was uh, seeking refuge in alcohol, I was angry. I was resentful. I was everyone else's fault. It's you. Look what you did. So there was never taking responsibility of myself. So if you're in that headspace, it's very easy to focus on someone else's actions and maybe even misrepresent them and misunderstand them. Um, So there could be that argument or that could be that thing going on in your life, but at the same token, you, uh, yes whilst that is still going on, the other person is still an asshole, the other person is still behaving very inappropriately one way or the other, you need to address it, and one way or the other, we need to speak up, and I think that is so important the speaking up, and, and uh, the question is, how do you do that, how do you speak up I mean, how do you encourage open conversation, what recommendations are do you you? Yeah. Uh, giving to, to people you work with?
1: Yeah, because I do a lot of work around, especially for my corporate clients, um, setting boundaries, how to talk about them, how to have conversations about what that looks like. Um, I think there's a few things I would recommend. First and foremost, I would say understanding that if if you have to know your boundaries first, right? And so sometimes you can, I always recommend people pause and think about what those boundaries are. And they can be very Broad and some of them are very shared, right? So, hey, we're not comfortable with sexual harassment. Yeah, generally, that's a boundary that's shared across, you know, dynamics, industries, cultures, companies, whatever, right? Mm. But some of our boundaries are very niche and nuanced. They're based in our personal traumas, our personal histories. You know, I worked with a person once who was an account manager, and growing up, her parents were very driven around. Accomplishments. And a lot of times her mom would sit there. Her mom wanted her to be an orchestra. And when when she was playing, she would sit there and like tap her foot and beat with the metronome. And years later, when that account manager had a manager who oversaw her, the manager would come in and would tap their pen against the click, the um, like notebook she was carrying. And she didn't realize how much anxiety and stress that was causing her. Now, that's a very niche and personal boundary, but that's something that's worth recognizing, right? For me, um, when I experienced sexual harassment in the workplace, my boss used nicknames in a very derogatory way. And it's taken me time to reconcile, like that's a boundary of mine. Like one of my best friends who I know, first time I met him, just gave me a nickname. And it wasn't from a mean or demeaning place. That's just who he is. But my initial reaction was to feel that anxiety and that tension of why would you do that? Right. And so I think the first piece is it's good to explore our boundaries, because once we explore our boundaries, we can come up with language we can use to tell other people around those boundaries, because the huge thing I always tell people is we don't need to over explain what our boundaries are. But it's worth us having that information back of mind. Sure. So like with that friend, for example, with me who gave me those nicknames, my reaction was just to accept it and move on. I was able to say, hey, this is a boundary that I hold that is very niche. Um, I can understand this guy's intentions are very different. That's fine. That's whatever. But let's say I was in a work environment and yeah. I had a boundary around feedback or how I like to be communicated with. Maybe it stemmed from a place of trauma in my past. I don't need to share that. Um, That's not something I would necessarily need to share with a boss or another individual it's it's okay just to say hey I really don't like the I I don't like receiving feedback in person can you send it to me over email I hey it really makes me uncomfortable when you give me feedback in front of the team would you mind doing it one on one, Mm -hmm. and once we can talk about our boundaries we it's good for us to know the history it's good for us to know the history because it's also good to know what we don't want to talk yeah, about. Exactly. But then once we set that, we can kind of negotiate what it is with our peers and our colleagues and our coworkers. Cause we may recognize like, mm. Hey, some of our boundaries absolutely shouldn't be violated. Some of them are going to change, right? As much as we can say, look, I don't want you to give me feedback in front of the team every once in a while. That's going to have to happen. So that gives, gives us the ability to negotiate it though and understand where the other place the person's coming from. Mm and then i think if someone has you know violated a boundary if someone's made a joke or a comment or said something to you. I think sometimes it's taking the time um, to remove yourself from that situation, Mm -hmm. especially if it's in a public facing situation, because calling that person out immediately can cause them to become defensive. And it can really heat tensions. And regardless of how you do it, if there's Mm -hmm. other people around, it might, again, lead to some kind of tense feelings or emotions. Mm -hmm. And so taking a step back, thinking for a second about what happened Why did it bother me? How can I contextualize this to the person? What do I need to share with them versus what am I going to keep to myself? Think about what is the channel to use, right? So sometimes Mm. it might be, hey, this keeps happening. This person seems to be doing this maliciously. This person really seems to be um, Mm. doing this to cause me problems or to hurt me. All right, well, then your recourse is probably going to be different than if it's, okay, this is a boss that I really trust. This was a Mm. one-time thing. I know them. I have a good trusting relationship with them. Mm. And then the last piece I always recommend is thinking about um, the idea of bystander intervention. And I think that's becoming a very popular topic for many companies in training is helping also create a company culture where it's not just the person who might have experienced the Mm -hmm. harm or felt the boundary violation to be the one calling it out. um, Because that puts a lot of onus on them. And especially going back to that idea of power, Mm -hmm. there's a huge power differential. They may never feel comfortable talking about Mm -hmm. it. But if we can train our employees and our team to think about boundaries and then to think about how we're addressing that and to care about those topics, Mm -hmm. it might make it easier so that, you know, hey, maybe the intern doesn't have to say where they felt uncomfortable, but me as your peer can say, hey, man, I saw what you said to them. And it Mm -hmm. seemed physically it seemed like they were uncomfortable. Like, I just think I know we make that joke, but like you probably really should watch what you're doing or like, hey. Mm I know you were upset. I know you were angry, but like mm. next time, take a second, pause, step out of the room, breathe before you yell at the entire team. Right. It gives us the opportunity when we know and have those skills to pay attention to the people around us. And, you know, when we kind of ingratiate that in our culture, it allows us to do a better job of having those conversations with each other and talking with each other. And it really is a skill that takes practice and time, but I think we have to be intentional in wanting to cultivate that skill and mm. um, Because I think that even if you're coming from a place of helping someone grow, if you've never talked about that as a part of your culture or never talked about that as a part of your organization, it can feel very sudden versus if you come to, you know, from, you know, you set this container of this is the type of stuff we do here. I think it's going to be received much differently.
0: And it's beautiful and it doesn't actually take so much from a leadership point of view or from if you anyhow practice good good leadership, then you want to hear um, what negative things are happening. As a leader, I want to everyone in my team to be able to speak up. That is the, the crew resource management. That is the, the kind of principles where you want even the lowest member of the team having a chance to talk. And I fostered it anyhow, because I know it will save my bacon over and over again. Um, Why not foster the same thing with regards to, to... feedback with regards to um something like that i i finish every every theater session with okay um list feedback um and typically there's nothing ever to say so therefore everyone already loves because i'm saying thank you very much for your for your time and your effort today Uh, and it's just a nice thing and 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 the odd time i forget it people turn around and say oi. you've forgotten something there (laughs) you know but it is it is by doing that culture by doing that uh that that kind of openness um you actually invite people to speak up and it's a beautiful thing it is it is actually you empower people you empower the people around you to be truly part of a team if you look at at, at the frustration of um, of burnout, it's often that f- people feel powerless and that they feel not heard with their concerns, etc. So if you are actually keen on having a viable uh, team structure and, and actually a positive vibe, you want to prevent burnout. And essentially, we are talking about the same things there. Uh, and sexual sexual explicit uh, behavior or talk etc that makes some people rather uncomfortable well that would be something that you could easily raise and and address and by doing so that makes you a leader and it doesn't matter if if, yeah so yeah
1: it's, it's the idea of safety right i mean i think it's it's and it's how do we feel safe right i think so many yeah. of us think of safety as this physical thing but it's yeah. the idea of if I feel safe at work, I yeah. know my voice is going to be respected. My opinions yeah. are, I can share my opinions openly. Yeah. And then my identities aren't going to be dismissed, that I can show up as I am, who I am. And that I'm not going to be mocked or made fun of or ridiculed or belittled because of that. Exactly. And when you feel safe, you're going to be a better employee. You're going to be more productive. You're going to be mm. more engaged. You're going to make creative decisions. You're going to take mm. risks because you're not afraid of the people right. around you and mm. how they're going to respond. You know, and to your point of like, the feedback after when you're in the theater. It's like, I think sometimes people are so afraid of addressing these topics in the workplace because they're like, well, if we open the door, we're gonna hear all these things. And my response is, well, you should want to because you shouldn't want this happening in your organization, but even more so, I would rather catch a problem when it was at a one as opposed to when it was at a 10, as opposed to when it was at a 50, it was 100, right? Like we're looking at a scale. And I think so many people are afraid of opening that door. And I say, well, again, if it's happening, we need to stop it. But even more so, when we normalize a culture where people are comfortable speaking up, even if they're speaking up about the smallest of things, Fantastic. Because we can address it right away. We can stop it. We can cut it off. We can let it, you know, we can end it. Because I think that that's where toxicity builds. And every Mm -hmm. time people are like, well, how did that culture get to that point? I'm like, Mm -hmm. because they weren't addressing it. They weren't talking about it as it went on and on, that it it happened. Everyone saw it happen. No one said anything. So then the person who did it learned, I can do this and get away with it. And then Mm -hmm. what usually happens is other people see that. And other people say, well, so-and-so did this and they didn't get in trouble. Nothing happened yeah. to them. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to engage in those things. Yeah. And it builds and it builds and it builds and it gets worse because there's someone who's going to test the water and they're going to push, especially if they want to. They're going to do that pushing. Mm.
0: So true. So true. Tim, what an amazing interview. I mean, this was beautiful to to dive into that so difficult topic and whilst i've had many sexual abuse survivors on my on my show uh, it is the clarity with which you have outlined the problem and the, the solutions that you offer the people that you work with the organizations that you work with that has made this interview outstanding and uh, you're an amazing man uh it is an, a really important message and I'm absolutely bloody honored to have you on my show. I'm very, very grateful. Um, if people want to contact you and and want to work more with you, how can they find you?
1: Yeah, the best. Uh, well, first, thank you. Um, Stephen, I really appreciate the chance to be here and, just, again, the platform mm-hmm. and your willingness to have this conversation. Um mm-hmm. The best way to get in touch with me is just through my website, timmuso.com, such so as name last name.com. Um, I have you know links to my show so- socials there, but there's a contact form. You know, I, I regularly publish material that I'm writing or videos I'm creating there, uh, other podcasts, things of that nature. And so that's always the best way to stay in touch with what I'm doing.
0: Beautiful. And guys, look down there into the description of the YouTube video and of the podcast. And whilst you're down there, press that subscribe button. Come on, guys. And when you're subscribing, you might as well go that extra step. find one person in your tribe in your group of people, and tell that person, "Hey, you know why don't you check my steps the sobriety out? That dude is onto something he is bringing on some really cool people, and he is having some really in depth conversations about things that might be of interest to you." So if we can spread the word and if we get actually the word out there that it's okay not to be okay and that there is actually hope and that by us connecting and opening up about our journeys that maybe that might be the solution to so many problems. I like to believe that we can change this world one interview at a time, one discussion at a time. And I think, yeah, let's make this world a better place. It deserves to. Cool. Tim, thank you so much for coming on to my show. Absolutely delighted. And you guys out there, look after yourself. Stay strong. I believe in you. Come on, you can make it happen. Bye.